this past Tuesday, the local small group of preachers that I belong to um, went to see Mount Vernon and to study George Washington's life together. We really went to see how much one person can affect the rest of the world, and we were not disappointed. George Washington only had five years of formal education, but this self-taught man became the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, the first president of the United States, and the father of our country. Not not bad for a life of just 67 years, I think. Gary Smith from the Center for Vision and Values wrote, As president, Washington strove to establish public confidence in the new government and to demonstrate that political leaders could act virtuously. What a novel idea. Think we need more of that? He went on. He said, Washington believed his character was much more and more important to the success of the republic than his policies. And he spent much of his adult life creating and preserving a reputation for integrity and uprightness. In 1788, the planter wrote to his trusted confidant, Alexander Hamilton, I hope I shall always possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most envious of all titles, the character of an honest man. And so his character helped hold the other founders together in the midst of tremendous trials and reassured them that they could, in fact, construct a workable republic. His example of self-sacrifice, discipline, and moral goodness helped elevate the status of the presidency. I just wish our political candidates today would realize how important character is. Now, what impressed me most about George Washington was his basic integrity, his honesty, his humility. People uh, debate how devout a Christian he was. But I saw a man who prayed to God and studied the Bible every day, morning and evening. He wanted to know God better. And I saw a man that kept pursuing God's will for his life, whether he was in the comfort of his own home or out on the battlefield. He never touted his own faith. He never forced it on anyone else. But he certainly lived by Christian principles and asked for God's help day by day. He worked hard to be faithful to his convictions. And as a result, I think God helped him achieve much more than most people. Faithfulness sounds like a pretty tall order, doesn't it? Can you be faithful? Can I be faithful? How can a person stay faithful to God their entire life? Well, on our own, we can't. But with God, all things are possible. Faithfulness is another fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking during this series called Believe. How Paul wrote in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and how these are things that are produced in us when we surrender to whatever God wants to do in and through us. Like the others, it truly is a fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of our own effort, not the fruit of our own intelligence, but a fruit of the Spirit of God. Faithfulness to God is a very big challenge, but it is totally doable with God's help and God's guidance. So, how are you doing at being faithful to God this morning? One of the Bible people we read about this week is Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. He was the highly favored younger son of Jacob. 
to whom he gave this multicolored coat, which set him apart from his brothers and made them envious. His, his brothers were very jealous of him and sold him into slavery, claiming to their father that a wild animal had killed and eaten him. Abused by his brothers, taken to Egypt as a slave, Joseph just kept doing the right thing. He kept believing that God would fulfill his promises to him. And he kept doing whatever God wanted him to do in every situation, every circumstance of his life. He kept doing the right thing even when it got him into trouble. His master's wife tried to seduce him. But he told her that he could not sin against God or against his earthly master, Potiphar. Feeling dejected and rejected, she falsely accused him of trying to seduce her. And so her husband threw Joseph in prison, but God was with him even there. In Genesis 39, 20-23, we read, that, read this. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison ward. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did, faithfulness. In refusing the wife's temptation, Joseph showed his faithfulness to God. And man, what surprises me that he, is that he doesn't even show a shred of bitterness against God even when his faithfulness landed him in prison. Eventually he was called up from prison to interpret Pharaoh's troubling dreams. Through a miraculous series of events orchestrated by God, Joseph was put in charge of the whole land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And through him God saved the land of Egypt and much of the known world as well, including Joseph's entire family back in Canaan. If you've never read Joseph's amazing story for yourself, I want to encourage you to do that. Genesis 37 to 45 is where you find it. And you will be amazed by his story. And at the end of this story, when Joseph finally reveals himself, who he is to his brothers, they were worried that he might be vindictive and put them in prison or even kill them. But Joseph said in Genesis 45, And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. I like Joseph because here's a guy living faithfully for God. He doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know what today uh, even holds. But he's just faithful to God. He's faithfully trusting God and leaving the results to God. Can we do any less? Can we do any more than that? I don't think so. The key verse for this week of belief comes from Proverbs 3, 1 through 6. And it says there, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. And from these verses, I just want to quickly say three things that we can learn about faithfulness. First of all, that faithfulness is needed if we want to bring glory to God. If that's the desire of your heart, if that's what you want to do, is bring glory to God, please God, make God happy, make God look good, faithfulness is required. Vacillating back and forth between faith and lack of faith will bring no glory to God. Hypocrisy will bring no glory to God. Trusting not in God but in ourselves will never win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So to glorify God, we must first love him, and then put our trust in him faithfully and forever. Are, are we truly desiring to follow God? Is it apparent to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers that we love God and that we believe in God? Do our lives bring glory to God? Secondly, faithfulness is obeying and trusting God every day. It's real simple. Trusting and obeying. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says that we must do three things. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Secondly, lean not on your own understanding. And thirdly, submit to him in all of your ways. And in the New Testament, James warns us that we must not only listen to the word of God, but we must do whatever God says. A person only hears what God has to say, but never obeys what God says, is only fooling themselves about being a Christian. Faithfulness is obeying and trusting God every day. Thirdly, Proverbs says faithfulness is possible only with God's help. It's possible in our case as Christians only through Jesus. It's not something you're going to do. not something I'm going to do. It's done because Jesus is living in us. We can't live a faithful life on our own. It is a fruit of the Spirit. We may try harder and harder to be like Jesus year after year, but we can only truly be like Jesus when his life is lived in us. Jesus made it abundantly clear that we are dependent on him for our very lives. He said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not only the way to our Father, we like that verse where this is our way to salvation and to heaven. But he's also the truth by which we make our decisions and the life through whom we live. Jesus explained to his disciples in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, however, you can do nothing. Apostle Paul said, It is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Now that's the nutshell of faithfulness message. But I want to go on to something else today. I want to spend some time doing something with you that is, is very important to the life of our church, to the, to the growth of our church individually and corporately. The church leaders and I have been looking for the right opportunity to teach about discipleship this year, and today's the day. This lesson on faithfulness seems to be the perfect time to do that. So let me do that now. Adam, would you help me, please? Side a little bit. Or maybe I should go right. No, I should go off to the side. I want you to be able to see these chairs this morning. And what I want to do is teach through the four-chair discipleship process. I had the opportunity last fall at ICOM to go to one of the workshops 
And it was offered by a fellow named Dan Spader, who has become a specialist in teaching this. This is something that, that he came up with by studying the Word of God, and he's now teaching it all over the place. In fact, uh, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the biggest churches in the country, has hired him for a year to come and teach it to all of their people, leaders, all the people of the church, 20, 20 however many, 20,000 they have. And they want him to be there because this is so fundamental. And so what Dan Spader did was, he went through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus live? How did Jesus take this ragtag group of 12 disciples and turn them into difference makers? Into people who, through them, God could change the whole world. How did that happen? And so he spent two years just reading the gospel, studying, comparing different parts of that, trying to lay out a timeline of how Jesus spent time with them. And Spader came out of that saying, you know, Jesus was a genius at developing unlearned, ignorant people. And even he took almost four years to make these disciples into the twelve apostles. <laughs> this morning, I want to use these four chairs up here to help us understand where various people are on their path to God. And as we see what each of these chairs represent, we can better understand what total faithfulness to Jesus looks like. These chairs really represent different stages in a person's life as we draw closer and closer to God, from the left side to the right side. Now, we don't all move at the same pace, but hopefully our desire to get closer to God throughout our lives, remain strong and firm. The timing is not as important as the fact that we are always moving. Because the problem is if somebody stops and they don't make it all the way from the beginning to the end. Here's what the four chairs represent. The finder, who is the seeker. Key phrase in Jesus' ministry to his disciples is a short little phrase, come and see. A finder is someone who is spiritually dead and needs to be one for Christ. A finder is seeking God in one way or another, but they don't know Jesus yet. They may feel this inclination towards spiritual things. They may be searching for the truth in various ways, various avenues. And when they finally get a chance to see Jesus, things start clicking, things start happening. And the Gospels show us this process even in the disciples' lives. Several of them were disciples first of John the Baptist. We were introduced to John the Baptist first. John comes as the forerunner. He's preaching down at the Jordan River. He's calling people to repentance, and they're being baptized for that repentance, that, that idea that they're seeking God. And one day Jesus appears on the bank of the river. And in John 1.29 it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. And then on in John 1, 35, it says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And so when it was in their heart to seek God, to understand God, to pursue God, Jesus said, come and see. Go ahead. Look. 
Look at all the evidence. Look at who I am. Just see it all. Now, the finder has made no commitment to Jesus. The finder has, has just decided, I want to check things out. I want to understand. I want to know. I, I need to know. And they're still figuring out who Jesus is and what he's asking each of us and what it will look like, maybe, if they decide to follow Jesus. But that's all they are. They're a finder. They're a seeker. And maybe that's where you are today. The second chair is the follower or the believer. The key phrase that Jesus gave to his disciples is a very short phrase. He said, follow me. There's a challenge to that. Follow me. A follower is someone who is young in the faith. Maybe they're just an infant. Maybe they're a young child. They need to be built up and they need to be encouraged. John 1.43, it says Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. He did this with Matthew. He did this with, with uh, James and John. He did this several times. The follower has decided to follow. <laughs> Pretty simple. He decided to surrender his life or her life to Jesus. They've decided, I'm in this for the long haul. I want to learn everything I can about Jesus so that I can be more like him. Now, they don't know where God's going to lead them. They don't know what the future holds. But they have decided to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And in between chair one and chair two, if I had it to put up here as a prop, would be the cross. Because that's the decision that happens between the first chair and the second chair. You come to the foot of the cross and you see Jesus and what he's done. And you decide to surrender to Jesus. So critical. The cross is where that transaction takes place. And that's where the change of your life takes place. By the grace of God, we are forgiven. And we're able to go on from that time as a follower of Christ with fits and starts, ups and downs, but following him day after day. And that cross represents the decision to surrender in faith to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Third chair, the fisherman, the worker. The key phrase Jesus said to his disciples later on, in fact, Dan Spader says this wasn't until 18 months into their relationship, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. A fisherman is someone in God's kingdom who needs to be equipped to serve. They decided they want to serve. They want to work. They want to be involved. They want to be part of it. Matthew 4.19 tells us about Jesus turning to his disciples and he turns them into spiritual fishermen. He said, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Some of them had actually been fishermen before this. They understood that. Jesus started with James and John, Peter and Andrew and Aunt Matthew. He said that to all of them. But then he went on to reproduce followers of Jesus in all of them. He gave all of them on-the-job training so that they could challenge their obedience and so that they could feel his power in their lives. And so we read in Luke chapter 9 and other places where he sent out the disciples. He gave them power of healing, power of uh, 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 being able to deliver people from demons and to preach the word. And then they came back and they reported. And then he sent them out again and he equipped them in that process so that they could be fishermen. A significant change occurs in the thinking of a person who moves from follower to fisherman. Don't miss this. This person has decided not only to receive, 
but to give. Big difference. There are a lot of people who are really happy to receive. Not as many want to give. And to move from second chair to third chair is that idea. The fisherman has agreed to not only do what Jesus says to do, but to go wherever Jesus wants him or her to go. The final chair is the fruit bearer, the disciple maker. The key phrase comes to us from John 15 where Jesus said, I want you to go and bear fruit. Another place it says, go and bear much fruit. The fruit bearers making disciples by multiplying themselves into others through their life and their ministry. John 15, 16, in fact, says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus' goal is the fourth chair for all of us. You may not feel that. You may say, well, I'm, a, I'm pretty much a chair two guy. No. <laughs> because his desire, his goal, is for all of us to go through to the fourth chair. We have not, in fact, finished the discipling process. We have not finished making a disciple until they, in turn, are making disciples themselves. The fruit bearer has then taken responsibility not only to give, but to nurture and to encourage others to keep growing in their relationship with Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples, now just get out there, multiply disciples, do what I did. This is the four-chair discipling process. This is the plan that, that we've uh, chosen for this church like so many other churches. And so we need to go out and we need to befriend people uh, of all kinds. And when we see, we discern that God is drawing them, that there's a seeking in their heart, there's this desire to know God, then we need to spend time with those people. We can't spend time with everybody, although we can be open to everybody and love everybody, but when we see a seeker, when we see a finder, then we gravitate to that person, we spend extra time and energy with them because they're trying to figure this out. And we're trying to get them to the cross so that they can find Jesus. And then when they decide to follow Jesus, it's still our responsibility to continue nurturing them, encouraging them, because they are now a new follower, but they're very young in the faith. They're a child. They may be still much like an infant needing a lot of care, a lot of dirty diapers and all the rest of it. But it's our job to bring them to maturity to where they choose not only to receive but to give and to become a fisherman, a fisher of people. In 1 John 4, 6, we are told to walk as Jesus walked. The secret to living a faithful life that can make a difference for God is simply to walk like Jesus walked. To follow him, to live life with the same priorities that Jesus lived by while he was here. Jesus basically said to us, do what I've done. Walk as I've walked. Follow me. I want to ask you this morning, are you a finder, a follower, a fisherman, or a fruit bearer? What you think about that? Which chair are you in today? Because that's critically important. Another question is this, how long have you been in that chair? 
Too many people get comfortable in chair number two. They stay here the rest of their lives. They plop down on a follower. And they look over at what it takes to, to become the fisherman and say, I'm not signing up for that. I'm pretty comfortable right here. I, I did get past the cross. I'm good to go. Dan Spader, sometimes when he teaches this, puts it up on a big stage. He doesn't put that kind of a chair there. He puts a lazy boy in chair two. Do you understand that? <laughs> hmm. Maybe a little drink holder on the side. Remote. Is that a picture of where the majority of Christians are today? Chair number two, stuck there, comfortable there, content, but missing the rest of the plan of God. Because God calls each of us to be equipped for service. He calls each of us to give, even at a sacrificial level, and eventually to learn what it means to make disciples of others, to be so well discipled, so well ingrained in the faith, so faithful in living out this thing we call following Jesus that spills over into lives around you. In which chair are you sitting this morning? If you realize you're in chair two, figure out what your next step needs to be. And then take it. Take the next step in your life. Do whatever it takes, whichever seat you're in. If you're at the finder place and you're just searching, you're just struggling, you're trying to figure this all out, maybe even as a new Christian you feel, you know, I'm more like a finder than a follower even. I'm, I'm still figuring out so much. I don't even know what to do next. Then move on. Figure out the way to get to the next chair, the next level, the next stage of your life. And if you're a worker and you're wearing ten hats because nobody else wants these hats, nobody else wants to do this work, there's more for you than that. And the reason you're there is because there are too many people got stuck at chair two and they're not helping you in chair three. So reach back and help people figure this thing out, how to give as well as to receive. And then realize that God is not done with you yet. And he wants you to be pouring your life into the people around you so that they are made into disciples who can then make more disciples. Our country and our world are in deep trouble, aren't they? I, I look around and sometimes as a grandpa I think, good grief, what have we born these children into? What is life going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Many people do not know God. Many people are lost without the salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. And the difference is going to be whether or not we step it up, whether or not we move up, whether or not we grow and we mature and we reach out to the searchers, the seekers, the finders and help them figure out who Jesus is. Our master Jesus has gone away for a while, but he has given us his spirit and he has left us with one, two, or five talents in our hands. What are we doing with what is entrusted us? What are we doing with the lives he has given us? When he returns, will we hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of your master. Clarence Jordan, 
was a man of unusual abilities and commitment. He had two PhDs, one in agriculture and one in Greek and Hebrew. Wow, I admire him for that. He was so gifted he could have done whatever he wanted to do, but he chose to serve the poor in Georgia. In the 1940s, he founded a farm in Americus, Georgia, and called it Koinonia Farm. It was a community for poor whites and poor blacks. And as you might guess, his idea didn't go over very well in the deep south of the 1940s. Town people tried everything they could to stop Clarence. They tried boycotting him. They tried slashing the workers' truck tires when they came to town. And over and over for 14 years, they tried to stop him. Finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had had enough of Clarence Jordan, so they decided to get rid of him once and for all. They came out one night with guns and torches, and they set fire to every building on the farm but Clarence's home, which they riddled with bullets. They chased all the families off the farm but one fam black family that refused to leave. And, and Clarence huddled down in the, the house with his family, recognized the voices of his neighbors, the voices of the Klansmen, some of whom were church people. And one Klansman he recognized was a local newspaper reporter. The next day, the reporter had the audacity to come out to see what remained of the farm. Burned out buildings were still smoldering, but, but he found Clarence out in the field, hoeing and planting more seeds. And the reporter said, I heard the awful news, and I came out to do a story on the tragedy of the closing of your farm. And Clarence just kept on hoeing and planting. The reporter just kept poking at him, trying to get this quietly determined man to get angry. And instead of packing, Clarence was planting. Finally, the reporter said in a haughty voice, Well, Dr. Jordan, you got two of them PhDs, you've got 14 years into this farm, and there's nothing left of it at all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Clarence stopped towing and turned toward the reporter, and he said quietly but firmly, about as successful as the cross, I reckon. Sir, I don't think you understand us, he went on. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying. Good day. And beginning that day, they rebuilt Koinonia, and the farm is still going strong today. Richard Francis says, All believers have God in their heart, but not all believers have given their whole heart to God. The question is not, how can I have more of the Holy Spirit? But how can the Holy Spirit have more? In a moment, we're going to sing a song. I want you to think about which chair you're in and how you're going to get to the next chair. Because that's God's design, God's desire. Come forward for prayer if you'd like to. If you want to be more faithful, then take the next step. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be on our hearts as we enter into time of, of decision, whether that decision is aired publicly or held privately in our heart between us and you is not really the important thing. The important thing is that we make a decision. We know where we sit. We know where we have gravitated toward and where maybe we've been comfortable for way too long. Move us today, Father.
Give us the nudge that we need. Shake us free from the chair we're in so that we may move on and become what you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.